everyone and welcome to episode 90 of the Retrospectors podcast sly cooper 2 band of thieves my name is patrick arthur and i'm joined as always by my co-host james turlings james we've been you've baited me yet again into playing what i thought was a stealth game are you proud of yourself well i think that sly 2 is a bit more of a stealth game than the first one albeit not very much more so but uh, i think uh, we're gonna find tonight that it is a very interesting game to talk about and actually quite a bit different from its predecessor yeah this is an episode that when we you suggested i was like oh my god it's going to be a very boring episode but i think that there is enough going on that is different about this game that there's actually quite a bit of discussion to be had so i'm pretty excited for this episode as well Oh yeah, I'm super excited for this one. The game made a massive leap, you know, coming into the sequel, and I think so much has changed and so much is different, and we kind of get our first peek into almost a Grand Theft Auto-style mission structure, which we haven't covered on the show, and I'm quite excited to tackle that. Yeah, and I still haven't done a GTA game ever, so I'll be uh, interested to hear your insights as to how it's comparable. Mm. But yeah, for those who haven't listened to us before, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. We covered Sly 1 quite a while ago on episode 34, so we recommend that you check that one out to hear how our opinions have changed. Uh, What we do is we play through these classic games of the past with the intention of discovering if they've truly stood the test of time. This is not a nostalgic perspective, we simply play these games today and then we have an in-depth discussion and review of them to see if they're worth your time to play today in amongst all the brilliant games that seem to get released every second day nowadays. We will get into our discussion of Sly 2 very shortly, but firstly, James, I have some news. I guested on another podcast, the Retro Hangover podcast. We had um, Shane from the Retro Hangover podcast on the show quite recently for Diablo 2. Good episode. It was a good episode. I enjoyed it a lot, although I was a bit more of a spectator watching uh, you you and Shane (laughs) discuss the intricacies of ARPGs, but it was enjoyable nonetheless. And they had me on their show for Duke Nukem 3D, which is... One of my defining games of my childhood, and I had an absolute blast doing that. Yeah, I kind of wanted to do that one with you as well, because I remember playing, I feel like the first few levels a couple of times, a mild PC, and something that always stuck out to me was how fun it was, like running around tapping uh, the activate button on random walls to find uh, little secrets. I think... uh, even more so than something like Doom 2, Duke Nukem 3D lent into that kind of thing. Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, something that they weren't, the, the Shane and Chris weren't the biggest fans of, actually. What? But But I kind of, the reason I wanted to do it for their show and not ours is because it's one of my defining childhood games. And although Shane and Chris do take a somewhat modern perspective, they let me get away with leaning into my nostalgia a bit more. Whereas on this show, I'd be forced to tear it to shreds. Although I, I still think it's a good game, but it's one that um certainly hasn't aged as gracefully in some areas as I as I may have hoped. To be honest, every time we do a game one of us is super nostalgic about, I feel like it's almost a mistake. There's no way that we can, you know, review one of these games without being incredibly biased towards it, even though 
I guess in Aquinox, I did say no that most people shouldn't play it. But <laughs> man, that whole time, the whole game, I was loving it. Yeah. So this is all to say, I um, highly recommend you go check out that episode and everything else the Retro Hangover podcast does. We'll pop a link in the show notes so you can have a listen to that um, and listen to us talk about the glory that is Duke Nukem 3D. But we are not here to talk about Duke 3D, unfortunately. We're here to talk about Sly 2 Band of Thieves. So, James, how did we play through Sly 2 this fortnight? We, of course, played through it on emulator because we cannot be asked getting a real copy of the game. There is a, a remaster collection on the PS3 uh, that you can probably get your hands on if you really want all of them in a nice little package. But for us, just so much easier to get one of these running on an emulator. Um, there was a couple of little settings that we had to tweak in order to make the game not look like it was smeared with Vaseline. <laughs> Just a few rendering options that we'll leave in the show notes. Um, I basically had no technical problems with the game. One thing that stood out to me the moment I started playing was that the camera controls were horribly inverted and there was no setting to just invert the camera controls. So I just bound one of my analog sticks in the opposite direction to fix that and for the most part that worked great. Um, there was a few sections that used the right analog stick that meant I had to play with reverse controls for those sections but I thought it was worth it in order to get uh, better controls everywhere else. Yeah, whereas for me, it's funny that it didn't bother me at all. I think I've played so many 3D perspective games with both versions of the camera controls that I can now fairly quickly adapt to either way. So uh, it wasn't wasn't a problem for me at all. But yeah, had no technical issues on the uh, on the emulator either, apart from those uh, renderer settings that uh, that we changed to get it working. Yeah, I did see online about the place that there are. There's this one place in the game uh, in one of the ice levels that apparently crashes regularly it's the one where you're sneaking about the bear cave um i did hear that a lot of people sometimes get crashes in that but you know uh, i didn't and even then i was playing in an emulator so it wouldn't have been too bad but just be aware of that um if you're looking to pick this one up it makes me wonder if the save states were the part of it because i was just using save states the entire time and um yeah had no issues yeah. at all so I recommend using rolling save states. It's always the best way to do it. I had nine save files. I've learned my lessons from my <laughs> in lost other games. Yeah. In other games before. <laughs> yeah, well, poli poli it happened in Police oh, North, no. so it was just the worst. <laughs> when I lost like an hour and a half's progress and just <laughs> there's no way to speed run Police North. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no issues and I'm grateful for it. So it's just some basic info on Sly 2 before we get into the discussion. So it's a 3D platformer, and as we suggested, it is a stealth-themed platformer, much in the same way that um, that Eternal Darkness is a Lovecraftian horror-themed adventure game. It was first released in the year 2004 for PlayStation 2, and as the name suggests, it's the second in the Sly trilogy, following up the original Sly Cooper from 2002. Um, it was developed by Sucker Punch Studios, which uh, have been best known in recent times for that open-world samurai game Ghost of Tsushima. I know that there are many people who are big fans of that game and think it's basically a better twist on the Assassin's Creed formula. You take control of Sly, Bentley, and Murray, the band of thieves in the title, as they try to hunt down all the missing pieces of Clockwork, who was your murderous nemesis from the previous game. At the end of the first game, Clockwork was destroyed and all the bits and pieces of him were scattered. 
uh, but each piece has been taken by a criminal in a gang called the Claw Gang, and it's up for you and your pals to pull off a series of heists uh, to get them away from those criminals and to safety. So I think that the first place, we'll, the first thing we'll talk about is the structure of this game, because this is the first of many ways in which the game radically departs from what Sly Cooper 1 did. So Sly Cooper 1 did have hub worlds and it did have mission, it had a hub world and it had missions off the edge of the hub world, but they were more akin to say the world in Diddy Kong Racing. The world that was hosting all of the missions was tiny. It was just a tiny, tiny little area and the missions you could move between them in 10 seconds flat. Yeah, I would describe it as like basically being a Crash Bandicoot clone. Um, it felt very much like mm. that. You had these 3D platforming sections where you were mostly walking forwards um, with you had these very large enemies that kind of died in one attack instantly. Um, and mostly served as being like roadblocks rather than actual video game enemies. Whereas Sly 2, I think, becomes a much different kind of platformer, right? Yeah, so I guess the big thing that, the first big thing that differentiates it are these hub worlds. So the, the game takes place over eight episodes, and each episode has a big open hub world associated with it. So this isn't a continuous game world. It's not a true open world like your Grand Theft Autos or your Assassin's Creed's or Ghost of Tsushima. It's more that you have large open hub worlds, something more akin to... Do, can you think of another example of a game that does something similar to this, James? Banjo-Kazooie was probably the only other game where we did something like this, but it's not quite the same because Sly 2 kind of takes like a mission structure... Um, I'd say the levels are a little bigger than the levels in Banjo-Kazooie, but you kind yes. of, you have like a base of operations in each act or episode, um, which you go to uh, where you can change which character you play as, and then um, as you're doing each level, there are kind of like markers scattered around the level, which serve as the starting point to missions. It kind of follows the same structure in every level, right? Like you get to the hub world and, you know, the reason you're here is because the villain has one of the clockwork parts and you want it. So you do a bit of scouting, um, you take some photos, you figure out, you know, what the villain's doing with the clockwork parts, why they're doing it. And then Bentley kind of comes up with a plan um, of how you're going to get this part. He basically outlines you know, a heist, essentially, right? Like a big thieving heist. And then he says, all right, in order to do this crazy plan, we're going to need to do this, 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 and this. And all of those dot points end up being missions that take place either in the open hub world or within buildings in it, which kind of are like instanced areas. Yeah, so the missions come in generally, as James said, you do the recon area, you get a set of three missions. When you complete them, you do a further set of three missions, and then you have the big heist at the end. And every level in the game, except maybe the last one, which is um, which is a bit different, follow that exact structure where you're doing about seven to eight missions per episode. The missions themselves take uh, place in a combination of those instant areas, but a lot of them utilize the open world as well, because the open world is a significant gameplay space. It, it's not just a, as, as James said, like a crash hub world where it's just there to move between areas. It fulfills a gameplay aesthetic story function as well. 
Yeah, lots of the missions, like, it's very obvious that the big hubs were designed with the missions in mind. Um, the missions very often take place in the open world using, like, the geography of the level um, and, you know, buildings and locations around it and the enemies. Um, in a way that's a bit different to a lot of other games that would do something like this, I think a lot of other games kind of would restrict you to certain parts of the level when missions take place and you know if you walk out of the bounds it ends the mission but in Sly 2 you generally can just walk around the entire level during a mission um, without much you know in the way of consequence. Although there's also not exactly much reason to do anything yeah. other than the mission that you're given. Um, there are some bonus loot that you can collect to take back to your safe house. You're not allowed to collect it when you're on a mission and you can't ever do two missions at once. When you've embarked on a mission, you are on that mission until you have completed it or decided to leave it. This isn't like you know, a game like Thief, where you have a big open map, you've got multiple objectives and you can kind of do them in whichever order you choose. It is still instanced in the sense that those missions are to be, you know, you start them and finish them and then you return to the open world. Yeah, and one thing important to note is that these missions aren't strictly platforming missions either, like in the first game. In the first game, you effectively did a series of platforming missions. In Sly 2, you do platforming, but there's also a whole heap of mini-games and all sorts of alternate gameplay styles that take place in the world. It's a lot more similar to something like Grand Theft Auto or Jack and Daxter 2. Um, where the missions are quite varied and you'll be doing a whole bunch of different things, often mixing gameplay styles together in order to fulfill your objectives, and in many cases doing completely unique gameplay that you're never going to see again. So Sly 1 did do this as well. Sly 1 had like the racing missions, it had yep. some turret missions and stuff, but I would say like 70 to 80% of your time in Sly 1 was spent doing pure platforming missions. Yep. Here, it's not quite reversed, but it's closer to maybe 30% platforming and then 70% other stuff. Yeah, basically, I'd agree with that, yeah. Um, so James and I w were like, we need to explain how this game works before we start talking about it. But I think it's time that we start talking about what we think of this, James. So, so James, it seems like the best place to start is instead of getting into the gameplay aspect of this, let's talk a little bit about the aesthetic appeal and structure of the open world how it how it affects the storytelling how it affects the atmosphere how it affects the immersion did you enjoy the open world structure from this perspective yeah i think the open world approach actually ends up um, benefiting the game a lot i think that this could have done been done very poorly but there's been a lot of thought and care to put into the design of the levels um, and they've put a heap of effort into Maybe not the writing, but at least the narrative framing of everything you're doing in the game. Um, something that felt a bit disjointed in the first game was that the levels did feel like a bit abstract and a bit disjointed. Like you were in a hub world and there were six levels and they're all completely different. And sometimes it was a bit hard to see how they all fit together because basically in Sly 1, every hub world had like five platforming levels that had a key and you needed, you know, five or so keys to do the boss. Um, and narratively, there wasn't too much linking these levels together. Everything in Sly 2 is linked by a narrative thread 
uh, in the form of the plan and the heist at the end of the plan. And I think the fact that all the levels narratively kind of make sense and that everything you're doing in the levels make the open world feel justified in the context of the game. I um, I completely agree with you, James. It reminds me of when we covered Star Wars Republic Commando. That was a game where a lot of the time what you were doing was holding down E to hack or getting your teammate to hold down E to hack or do whatever other function. But because they were able to conjure up enough narrative justification to do all these different things, it never was repetitive or felt like we were, you were just doing something purely mechanical. And I think Sly 2 completely succeeds in this regard. In fact, I think it does it maybe better than any other platform I've, I've experienced. Psychonauts comes close, I think, uh, because yes. it has its own weird angle with all of the uh, mental mind-bending stuff that allows it to get away with a greater degree of abstraction. Definitely does it better than something like Banjo-Kazooie, which is yes. where you're just collecting collectibles for the sake of it. Every single activity, every single mission is tied into the greater whole. And um, I agree with you. I think from a narrative point of view, the open world is not only justified, I think it's incredibly impressive how they've done it. Yeah, I think the thing that ties everything together is, like I mentioned earlier, these mission statements that you get at the beginning of each episode. While mechanically they're not particularly interesting, I think this act of going through the levels, taking photos, and then listening to Bentley rattle off on, you know, why you're here and what you need to do to succeed, really kind of like frames everything nicely and it keeps your mind focused on the task at hand. Like, I was never really questioning why we were doing a certain kind of gameplay. Um, I always know exactly what our goal was at any given moment. And I think that's super important for a game that has such an eclectic mix of gameplay styles going for it. Um, uh, it. It just works really, really well. What I will say, James, is I was getting infuriated at my inability to skip Bentley saying stuff. <laughs> Playing through this game... <laughs> It, it wasn't even that Bentley specifically irritated me as a character. It's that he takes so long to say everything. And every time he says it, Sly, whoever's on the mission, re-says it back to him. Yep. I actually felt that this was a little bit overdone. Like, I, I get the need to frame and explain what you're doing. But particularly when you're playing, like, these missions in a row. So, you know, you, you, you know what each mission is. Having to sit there for a minute and a half while they explain it all over again was really annoying and i just wish if there wasn't an option to skip the cutscene, if i could just have it playing as audio as i started the mission that would have been so much better than having to sit there and sit through all this shit about what i already knew i actually have this exact note as a criticism on my points too um <laughs> what I, w I went back and i watched footage of the first game and something that the first game does that this game does not is that during the mission's Bentley's like face will appear in the bottom corner of the screen and he'll talk to you while you play the game. Yeah. That does not happen in Sly 2. It's like Metal Gear Solid 3 levels of taking you out of the <laughs> gameplay for like a conversation. And that game is so funny in that, you know, the opening prologue, it's just like every single screen, it's like eight minute codec conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I love uh. that game, but. Uh, it, it it was very frustrating here as well. Um, it didn't get on my nerves that much, but it definitely felt like they could have streamlined it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I was perfectly fine to sit there and listen to the initial mission brief 
And then, yeah, during the missions, they definitely could have just spoke to you while you were playing the game and it would have been a lot smoother. But yeah, I I would say that's almost a minor criticism. Like, it's just that they do tend to over-explain a bit. Um, And I can understand if you were playing this game with breaks in between, having that, you know, having that to rejig your memory would be fine. But playing it like I did, it was just, yeah, it's just a bit too much, a bit too bit too wordy i do think that the presentation overall is a massive step up from the first game also like i think that they've massively improved the character models they're a lot more expressive i think sly in particular looks so much better in this game i think in the first game he looked a little i don't know a childish i know this is a saturday morning cartoon kind of game but he does he's he's a bit more of a you know an adult thief in this game it felt like it felt like he had a bit more of an edge to him here um Mm -hmm. it's still going for that you know child-friendly cartoon vibe but i think a lot of the characterization is done much better here i think that some of the characters have some teeth actually um, I think that the visual presentation of the hand-drawn 2D art is, you know, very slick. Um, even just, you know, the animations of the characters when they're walking around. You can, of course, control three characters this time around. And I thought all three were very expressive, even if you're just standing still. Like when you control Bentley, super twitchy. Uh, Murray lumbers around and jiggles about as you run. I, I, I just think that presentation-wise, everything is better here. Yeah, I think the characterizations continue to be great, including the villains, like the villains' voice acting continue to be great. I will say that Carmelita's voice acting and also the other female cops, what's her name, James? Neela. Neela. I felt like Carmelita and Neela's voice actors like pretty obvious step below everyone else, though. Like, it's almost shocking how bad Carmelita continues to be. Uh, It's just not convincing as the the femme fatale, and neither is Neela. So I think Neela had some good lines. Uh... But but the the voice acting was not quite there. I, I agree that there were some good lines. It's just like there wasn't enough you know I, I don't know the other game that comes to mind that we've done with great um you know femme fatale voice acting is no one lives forever which is actually more closely linked to this game than you might think there is a hint of james bondian villains <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. these games and i thought that game's voice acting was head and shoulders fantastic yeah. i agree yeah uh bentley's voice actor is probably my favorite i think he hams it up like really well throughout the game even though you know sometimes he drags on a bit too long but but I, that's the point of the character yeah right, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, if it's to be forgiven on anyone it's him and then i think a couple of the villains do an okay job as well but uh some definitely more than others i like the bison guy he's pretty great and the contessa i thought was pretty great as well in terms of structure I gotta say, like, I really like that the levels aren't too big. Mm -hmm. They're dense. Yeah, they're dense. They're, like, tight. They all have, like, lots of points of interest and unique assets. There's always these big set point, like, you know, bits of interest around the place. Like, in the jungle, there's the huge mammoth skull. Um, You go to all kinds of different locations. And I think that they're all incredibly varied, which is awesome. Um... They do kind of do this thing where a couple of the acts are kind of like uh, in two parts to each other, which I was like, I was okay about, but I wasn't super hot on the idea. It kind of makes two of them feel a bit samey level design, uh, visual Mm -hmm. design wise, I guess. 
but it's to, it's hard to complain when for the most part i think the visual design of the levels was very strong the levels set in canada were particularly striking uh one of the levels there has you know its theming is this big crazy crisscrossing railway there are about like seven train tracks uh all crisscrossing all over the level in this big you know arctic wilderness um you know and that's completely different to the gothic architecture vibe of prague and uh you know the creepy jungle uh, i think they did a pretty good job of making the world's small dense and visually interesting yeah and i'm going to be crossing a bit into gameplay space here but i think they also did a fantastic job um giving you different ways to explore the world particularly when you're playing as sly because it's not just a big open world where you're running along pathways it's covered with drain pipes and spikes for sly to land on top of power lines for him to run across springs for him to launch off it it's got everything like it feels like there are 36 different ways you can crisscross your path as you go across the world this also introduces the unfortunate downside that when you are playing as bentley or murray the world becomes a lot more frustrating and unenjoyable to navigate um, but whenever I played as Sly, my experience traversing and interacting with this world was one of delight. When I was playing as Bentley or Murray, it was one of boredom. It's interesting. I kind of agree, and but not as strongly as you on this point. So I do think that as characters, the movement of Bentley and Murray was underdeveloped. Um, I think that the levels are obviously designed for all three of them to be able to get around in. Um, and I think that later in the game, you do unlock a bunch of movement options for those two that make things a bit easier, uh, particularly the sprint on Bentley and his hover pack and the high jump on Murray. But yeah, Sly is, it's much more enjoyable to traverse the world as Sly. Like he feels good to control. Like, like the first game, all of the movement options basically boil down to pressing jump and then the circle button to you know, I to do basically every possible contextual action, um, which makes getting around quite easy. Um, I will say that, like the first, I forget if I got all the bottles in the first game. I'm pretty sure I got most of them, but I mm. definitely got 100% on this game because uh, I really liked getting all the bottles in this game, um, which uh, there are 30 of them spread around the place. And in the first game, I think we mentioned that the platforming itself is quite easy and i would mm -hmm. say that that's still true here to the point where i would say the platforming's like trivially easy like it's almost impossible to it, it's almost meant to be easy at this stage i've kind of come around on this a bit i think yeah. that the easy peasy platforming is almost part of the identity of this game in some way now yeah whereas when i went into sly one i was frustrated at the lack of challenge of the platforming but moving through this now you're just meant to be moving through the game at 100 percent speed all the time and if you do that then the challenge it becomes less of a challenge experience and more of like your your ability to smoothly flow your way through the level that you becomes intrinsically enjoyable yeah the faster you go it feels good right like when you're yes. speeding through the level like jumping from point to point you know swinging off a hook landing on a spire um double jumping over a height bouncing off something it feels smooth and fun I think that a lot of the joy in 3D platformers is less about the challenge and more about the the pure freedom of movement that you have access to. 
Um, and this is kind of, it's only as good as the levels, right? And I think that something that the levels do really good um, is that they all have a heap of verticality to them, which lends almost a puzzle aspect to getting around. Like, when I was collecting the bottles, there was this uh, thing that I would run into over and over, where there would be a bottle up high, and I would have no idea how to get up there, and I would need to spend a minute, like, following a path from the top of the level round this, like, mountain. I was like, how do I get up there? Oh, there's a spring there. How do I get to the spring? And then tracing that back. And then, like, after a minute or two of tracing backwards, then I would do the platforming to get up there. And that's kind of fun, I found. And um, to link back to what you were saying about Marion Bentley, because I found that process of almost the puzzle aspect of how to get to places with Sly and the bottles quite fun. I kind of found the same enjoyment with the limited movement options that Murray and Bentley had, because what tended to happen with me is that I would do a lot of the missions as Sly to begin with, and then all of the level design and the paths to get everywhere I would take for granted, because I would just jump over everything. And then suddenly, you know, I'd play as Bentley and I'd be like, how the fuck do I get to this part of the level that was so easy to get to a Sly? Um, and then that kind of brought back the, you know, the puzzling aspect. But there was definitely times where it was more frustrating than fun. Yeah, I, I just didn't really get anything out of it. Like, you just walk along the pathways that the guards are patrolling in the direction you need to go and you eventually get up there. But what was before, like, a you know, a thing where you're having fun platforming your way up to a location, you're instead like just walking along the paths, either punching them as Murray or trank darting them as Bentley or neither if you were, you know, sneaky enough. So I got nothing out of them and I really didn't enjoy moving around the world with them. And it makes me wonder why it was even necessary to to have that be the case. If moving around the world is more fun as Sly, you should have always been moving around the world as Sly. Yeah, I uh, have to admit, they could have done a much better job in this aspect. You know, they could have each had their own kind of movement abilities, right? Uh, they could have been fun in their own right. Um, yeah, but, but it was never going to be as deep as um, as deep as Sly. So w one of the ideas I had with this game, with these characters, is that I was like, man, this could have been a really good Lost Vikings game, like a 3D <laughs> take on Lost Vikings. Because the thing is, with these characters, you don't really want them to be as good as Sly as platforming. Like, platforming is Sly's thing, but you need to give them things that are different but just as interesting and viable. Like, for example, Bentley has gadget, Bentley has bombs. So what you could have made it is that Bentley can blow up switches that open doors that give him access to ways through the level that Sly doesn't have access to. Likewise, Murray can throw things. So maybe he can, you know, throw objects to, I don't know, activate switches out of reach, which drop ramps. I'm, I'm just spitballing here, but they could have done stuff with the level design to accentuate these characters. Even better, they could have done a thing where you could swap between characters and their different strengths and weaknesses could play off one another. But instead, yep. we just got Sly good at platforming, other characters not good at platforming. And while they can do one or two things, those one or two things are a fraction as interesting as the things Sly can do. It's, it's funny because I think outside of the platforming, like Bentley in particular is kind of fun, like interesting to play with 
outside of the platforming. Like, I really like his moveset. Like, he is terrible at close combat, but he has the ability to shoot sleep darts at people and drop bombs. So you kind of do this thing that always kind of struck me as a bit sinister of uh, sedating your opponents with drugs and then dropping explosives <laughs> on them in their sleep. Like, I always felt a little a little suspicious about this every time I did it, but it was kind of cool. Um, and then some of his other abilities, like the super speed run and the hover pack, were enjoyable to use as well. Whereas Murray's main ability is pressing the square button. And, and punching people. Killing, killing yeah, he he is a zero effort. lot less interesting than bentley i think they could have done a lot with his character in particular uh unfortunately not but you don't do too many missions where you actually start as him so it doesn't come up that much i guess all right james we've been talking about this open world as narrative for a while i think we can both agree that we both liked it quite a bit I want to get into this open world structure as a gameplay space in greater detail. But before we do, let's cut to a music break because we've been, uh, as I said, going for a while. So, James, what did you think of the music? I actually quite like it. Um, I think it's very understated in a lot of ways, but there are some really good themes, um, particularly the main theme that they've introduced, which I think works its way into most other tracks in the soundtrack to some degree. Um, the main theme, of course, being that song you hear. Uh, on the level select screen. Uh, I think each area had a very good distinct feel to it that was mostly carried by the music. There's not a heap of in-your-face bombastic tracks, but there are definitely some that stand out in my mind a lot more than others. And even the really understated ones, I think, do a really good job of setting the atmosphere and tone. There were some tracks like this in the first game, but I think most of the tracks in Sly 2 do a great job of setting the atmosphere of each level, which you know, to me is filled to the brim with personality. Um, you know, shout out to the gothic creepy levels uh, in Canada in particular, which kind of gave me, you know, flashbacks to Whispering Rocks and Psychonauts um, mm. a little bit. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, on the whole, I really liked it. Um, stuff like, you know, all the jazzy stuff in Paris was fantastic. So I think Paris and every single track from Paris absolutely slaps. I think that first hub world is the highlight of the soundtrack by far. One thing that I did notice, though, is that in the first game, it felt very much like the soundtrack in a lot of cases was formed around Sly. So you were going to different locations and the swamp definitely stands out as an area where the area defined the audio. But I still think that much of it was more based around Sly as a character and Sly as a thief. You know, for example, there was a lot of use of uh, bass and xylophones to emphasize the fact that you were a sneaky TV raccoon sneaking around the place. Here, it felt like they were creating the soundtracks to fit the world. And yep. uh, that means that they were better at setting a sense of place. But I do think that something was lost in, I guess, <laughs> basing them around the characters and making them feel uniquely like a Sly Cooper game. Because I could hear this music like the music that was set in India and not really think of Sly Cooper at all. Because I'd just be like, yeah, this is a pretty cool Indian sounding track. Or, man, this sure feels like Canada. So I do think it's a good soundtrack. but. I do think it's just a different take, and they've basically put world building first and Sly second. I think, and I'm okay with that. I think if they do what they did in Sly 1 again, it, then it kind of feels weird when you're playing as the other characters. Um, yep. I 
kind of agree, um, but I did really like a couple of the tracks. Um, let's start with your track. I think you wanted to pick the Paris one because that's the first level in the game, and I think that makes this most sense. And I also really liked that one too. So here it is, the Paris theme. that was Paris. So we were talking a bit about the, you know, the open world before, um, and I think you wanted to get into the gameplay specifics of it. Yeah, so before we get into the, I think the first thing we need to talk about is the clue bottles, because I want to talk about this world as a gameplay space. And I think that if you engage with the clue bottles, the world as a gameplay space, fundamentally like moving through the world is a much more interesting one than if you don't. And I did not engage with these clue bottles. And the reason for this is exactly the same issue I had with Sly Cooper 1. You either collect all of the clue bottles on a level or you collect zero. And I was not interested in collecting all of the clue bottles on a, on a level. The way I approach collectibles in gaming is that I want to do it for a while. Um, if it's intrinsically fun to collect clue bottles, like um, I enjoy the noise as you pick them up. If I spotted one in the distance, I'd want to go and collect it. But the fact of the matter is you get zero reward for getting 28 clue bottles or 25 clue bottles or 23. You either get 30 or none. And I do not want to spend time trying to hunt down the final three clue bottles um, in the world. So unfortunately for me, this is something that I got absolutely nothing out of and I just ignored them all even if I was tempted to pick up one or two because I knew that it would ultimately be a waste of time. James I know that you you love these clue bottles can maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how they were for you and whether you thought they were better or worse than in Sly Cooper one. Yes I collected every single one of them of course because I, I just love picking stuff up in uh, video games. I love you know ticking off the boxes. It's very cathartic. Uh, I just love running around and picking shit up. It's just fun. And I thought that this was much better than the first game um, by a huge margin. Now I wanted to talk about that thing you mentioned um, about you know getting the first 28 bottles and then running around aimlessly for the last two, which is what I mm -hmm. think kind of prevented you from, you know, trying to get them all. 
And I had this experience exactly once in the tutorial level um, where I was running around for like 15 minutes before I looked up where the last one was. And then in the second level, I realized I was an idiot um, and that all of the bottles in the game actually have quite a loud sound effect mm -hmm. that you can hear quite a ways away from the clue bottle. And it actually has really good directional audio. Like if you move the camera around, the sound of the bottle clinking on the ground will get louder and louder as you're looking in the right place. And because of this, and because of the fact that the open world isn't that big um, and that the clue bottles are only in the open world, not inside the buildings or anything like that. It actually isn't that difficult to find the last three like it would have been in the first game uh, where you could be running around a level for ages. If you know to listen to the clue bottles, I would basically find the first 25 just by doing the missions and then the last five would take me another you know, like five minutes to do on top of that, maybe. Um, wow. That, okay, that's not nearly as bad as I thought. Yeah. I, I, was, I was aware of the clinking of the audio bottles, and I, I do, like, to its credit, I think that's a really good thing. It's just that it feels like if I collect 25 and I'm like, I don't really feel like looking for these, it feels like I've just wasted my time picking yep. those clue bottles up. So I, I'm not even saying this is a bad... Um, bad way to do this particular thing it's doing and for the people who love getting 100% of things that's great I just think this is fundamentally flawed and I just wish they'd have a have a clue shop now I do think that a lot of the problems with the first game is that the only way to access upgrades was through the clue shop the fact that there is a money shop that gives you a bunch of upgrades and gadgets and things like that sitting alongside the clue bottles meant that I did have a way to engage in collectibles in a way that didn't involve the clue bottle. So it did feel like less of an issue for me because there was another avenue for me to access these cool special moves and gadgets as well. Because there is, of course, an upgrade shop in this game now too, where there's actually quite a lot of moves. Um, And I, man, even after collecting all the clue bottles, I did not have enough money to get all the moves. I think, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of choice here that you're you're not going to get everything unless you grind out money really hard. If you collect, get every single uh, lootable item from every single world, I assume that would get you close, right? Or did you get all those? I don't think I got all of those, but I got a lot of them and I still mm -hmm. had like eight upgrades. I still didn't have some of which right. were over like 2000 gold. And you get like, maybe I didn't see the last tier because the last ones I was buying were like 1500 or something. Yeah, so there was a probably few 2000 ones. Yeah. Right, I see. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff you can unlock in this game. Um, I wanted to talk about the treasure as well because I actually think this is a negative in some ways against the game. Something mm. that I really liked about the clue bottles was that whenever the mission took place in the open world you could just go get the bottles if you saw one like if you spotted one on the other side of the map that was nowhere near your mission objective you could take a break from the mission go grab it and come back and that kind of freedom i really appreciated i ran into that a lot where you know i saw a clue bottle and was like oh cool i'll just go grab that quickly mm -hmm. um the treasure is not like this and i found that 
insanely annoying. There's no reason for it either. Like, yeah. there's no reason you wouldn't be able to pick that up. Uh, the way the loot works is when you pick up the loot, you have to take it back to the safe house without getting hit, sometimes on a timer. There's no reason you you wouldn't be able to do that while on a mission. You just pick it up and run it back to the safe house, press a button, done. Loot returned, continue on your mission. Yeah. So it must have been some kind of scripting issue they were having problems with that meant it didn't get included in the game. I think the problem is that when you're on a mission and going back to the safe house ends the mission. Um, yeah, and you just add a trigger if you're carrying the loot. Like, it, it doesn't seem impossible, right? Yeah, they could have done something, uh, and I really would have wished they did, because there was a lot of missions that very obviously took you past one of these to show you where they were. <laughs> and then frustratingly, you couldn't pick it up. Like, I and you don't want to bother retracing your steps, right? Even just let me pick it up and then force me to do the rest of the mission without taking damage. Like, that's yeah. sometimes difficult, but I'm happy to do that. And I'm happy to fail, like, when that happens. Um, I agree, yeah. You know, taking treasures back from their pedestal to the safe house without taking damage is basically trivially easy. Whereas yep. I think... Doing that while on a mission is much harder. And much more interesting, right? And more engaging, yeah. So I think that's a quite a large misstep. So so let's put the clues aside for a moment, James, because I want to talk a bit more about this open world as a gameplay space. Um, I think that the open world overall as a gameplay space is a detriment to the game and i think it's worse than the linear missions in sly one and i'll see if i can explain why a lot of this game is mini games so what will happen is you'll begin a mission and the mission will be okay here are four like for example on the um contessa level at a spooky castle it's uh you need to collect bad evil mojo from these four crypts and inside each crypt you have a thing where you have to activate traps to kill enemies and that mini game is actually pretty fun. I enjoyed activating the different trap to kill the enemies. Like it was, it was enjoyable. What was not enjoyable, and this is not by far the only time where this happens, is moving between the crypt. Because the crypts are spread out over the castle. And every time you emerge from one of these things, you have to walk from one crypt to another. And all I could think as I was doing this was, if this was a linear mission, what we could have is we could have platforming crypt platforming crypt platforming crypt and in that same length of time i would be getting so much more gameplay instead i spent a lot of time walking around this open world that doesn't really have any interesting gameplay in the in-between parts and i just couldn't help but feel like it was padding james even when you're playing as sly and you're moving from location to location. Yes, moving around as slide does feel fundamentally good. But when I've done that path three times already, doing it a fourth time stops being so interesting. So I actually think that whenever this open world is utilized as a gameplay space, it ends up being far less interesting than the linear, more densely packed levels of Sly 1. Yeah, it's interesting because those kinds of levels are present in this game too, uh, in the form of instanced areas. Like in that mm -hmm. same hub world, I think there is a level as Bentley where there is all these lasers on the floor and you have to like traverse the lasers. Um, and there's, a, you know, a series of room, successive rooms that get, you know, different and more difficult in a way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I um, remember the one, yeah. Yeah, and there's no running around the overworld in that level at all, basically. Um, it's all in an instanced area. There's a there's a level in one of the Canadian levels as Sly where you do all this platforming through a sawmill. Yeah, I was gonna talk about that. That's one of some one of the best platforming parts in the game. In the whole game, absolutely. And um I think that these levels are in the game, and I think that like stuff like that one you mentioned where the open world is just for being traversed through yeah i think that's a misstep but i think maybe that's a misstep of the mission specifically um, but it happens in so many james this isn't like a one-off they're in that same same hub there's one where you have to pick the pockets um so you have to take out the guards that are trailing the contessa you have to take out guard one then take out guard two then take out guard three and every single time she le- she leaves and moves to a completely different area, you're like, oh, okay, I have to move to follow them. If this had happened in one or two missions, I wouldn't make a big deal about it. But the fact that it happens multiple times, every single mission is infuriating. Like, I, I hate... I hate it when games waste my time and it felt like the open world even though it wasn't deliberately wasting my time by the very nature of its structure as an open world it necessarily wasted my time it's almost like it felt compelled to to fit it inside this structure I do think your criticism here is valid um to me it's a bit of a trade-off thing right like we're trading tight abstract levels for big levels that make narrative sense um so to me i was less annoyed by this than you were although like i think that's a completely valid position to take on the open world honestly like one of my favorite things about the game was the narrative framing so the idea of this level having these crypts all over it to me made sense and you know Mm -hmm. Because I was playing as Bentley in that level, it was harder to get from point A to point B, so it was a little bit more tricky and engaging, but not, you know, not not a heap. Yeah, I, I, I guess this is a much bigger annoyance for me than it is for you. Like, yeah. any time I was Murray and I had to carry something and I was moving super slowly while carrying something, <laughs> um, the mission at the end was Sly where you have to get inside the TNT barrel mm. and you have to slowly, slowly move around on the bridges. Like, there's nothing interesting or fun about this. It's just, here's an open world, we've got to use it. And yeah, for me, this is like the number one problem with this open world. I I do agree with you that it's hard to have both. It's hard to have, you know, all of this narrative framing and not have some of this um, wasted space that's not particularly interesting to move around. But this was the number one thing that made me reluctant to come back to play the game because every single mission just felt like it was wasting my time. And unfortunately, those um, those instance sections are probably only about half as long as a proper platforming level in Sly 1. The levels in Sly 1 were short, but they weren't quite that short. Yeah. It sounds like we're heading towards talking about the missions themselves here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that for me personally um i enjoyed most of the missions i was medium on a bunch of the missions and i detested a handful of them uh namely like the turret sections where you're just like shooting things with very dodgy controls and it didn't feel very good 
Um, every single time a pickpocketing mission came up, I rolled my eyes into yeah, the back of so my head. Yeah, so many of them. They're like, they're like 12. Uh, there's so many, and they're all like pickpocket six guards or something crazy. It's like, this is so repetitive. Um, but for the most part, those aside, I do think that this game had a surprising amount of variety in it. Like, they constantly were throwing new ideas at you, um, even though, you know, some there was a bit of repetition here and there. And in its defense, it usually put a twist in the repetition. Like, yes. almost always there was at least one minor twist. So it wasn't just, you know, and it was more of a twist than, you know, Elden Ring's dragon fights, where it's like, yeah, this one breathes <laughs> frost, so it's a different dragon fight. They yeah. actually were functionally different. Yeah, and there's a heap of them that are completely unique gameplay not seen anywhere else in the game. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that variety-wise, this game was fantastic. Um, for the most part, the missions were fairly short. I thought that that was for the best because you've got like such a wide variety of gameplay. Um, by that nature, it's not going to be particularly deep. So if you keep it short and sweet, then you know that's not too much of a problem. The missions that you know I liked the least were the ones that dragged out for too long, and these like uh, lack of depth started to rear its ugly head. Um, pickpocketing and the turret sequences where every enemy felt like it had way too much health were the big ones for me. And then there was this one on the bridge in Prague where you had to hide on the bridge and ambush enemies that oh I my thought... God. I thought Awful. that went for like three times as long as it needed to. But for the most part, I'm mostly positive on all this. Yeah, so I'm actually mostly negative on these. I would yep. say uh, I liked some. There were a lot of like mediocre ones where I wasn't didn't feel too strongly. And there were quite a few bad ones as well. There were some I definitely enjoyed, like don't get me wrong. And I think that there's a couple of things going on here. The first thing which is quite interesting is that in our Sly 1 episode, I said I actually liked the mini games <laughs> as a way to break up the um the platforming but i think part of that was the fact that the game was primarily platforming and the mini games were just that they were on the side mini games that, that were there to break up the platforming here the mini games make up a larger percentage of the gameplay than the platforming does it feels like um I would say that I hated all of the hacking mini games, James. I don't know if you like those at all, but I found them to be a tedious, repetitive, um, time-wasting exercise as opposed to anything that was challenging my skill. And I would say that the turret sections were functionally the same, where it was just an endurance test, where if you, you just endlessly shot down missiles and did bits of damage here and there, and eventually the enemy would die. Um, the pickpocketing missions, as you said, and on the whole... There were a lot where I was just like kind of whatever about where I wasn't having a great time because all these mini games are fundamentally very shallow, right? Like they, yep. none of them have any real depth to them, um, which is, you know, technically fine as a mini game, but it means that it doesn't inspire much excitement or engagement most of the time. I would say something that I noticed like playing this game was that even in a lot of the mini games where they weren't mechanically super interesting, there was kind of like this enjoyment I was getting from the narrative framing of them, like the mm -hmm. way the characters were talking during the missions, um, you know, the idea of what was going on, stuff like the lumberjack games where you 
participate in a series of like competitions against the boss. I actually loved all of the Lumberjack game stuff, by the way. It, it was actually more challenging than pretty much anything else in the game as well. I, I agree with that. Um, but I think yeah. a large part of my enjoyment from that section was from the narrative framing a lot of a lot of it, like, uh, you know, rigging the judges and like yeah. messing with the character. Like a lot of that fun comes from the story aspect rather than what you're doing mechanically, right? Um, yep. And I think that a lot of the missions had that for me, at least. So I, I like I completely agree that a lot of these have a lack of depth, but I do think there is like a charm and character and personality behind a lot of these that they ended up being fun on the whole for me. Yeah, I, I completely agree um, with what you're saying, James. Like, I, I don't want to diminish the the narrative strength of these minigames and, you know, how it ties into the grander heist. And I have to say that the final heist you do once you've got everything planned, even though it's mechanically simple, it was satisfying seeing the plan come together yeah. and all the different elements you know come together to a narrative whole i have to say though james like you know i'm generally a gameplay guy first and yeah. foremost and playing this game i couldn't help but feel disappointed when they when they finished sly one they didn't look at the gameplay mechanics and think how can we make a more engaging deep gameplay experience it's like oh we've got these different characters maybe we can swap between them or how can we make the platforming more interesting for the player they instead decided to widen the experience they're like we're going to have this mini game this mini game this mini game you're going to control these three different characters that do slightly different things but none of them as interesting as sly and we're going to have all of these different simple experiences all which all are narratively tied together but the gameplay of sly 2 is not deeper than sly 1 and in some ways the gameplay of sly 1 is more engaging and mechanically interesting than anything in sly 2 because they weren't interested in heading to a deeper gameplay experience they wanted a wider one and i think for me that that ultimately falls a little flat like i can't get invested in this as a gameplay experience like i just can't because there's not much substantial here yep i can see that for me i like this game a lot more than the first game mm -hmm. let's let, let's talk about some of i want to talk about some of the, the missions that i liked and i want to see if you liked those as well okay um so my favorite one was the one you mentioned earlier that one where you play as bentley and you you know trigger the traps and the crypts are we including boss fights in this as mini games or is that a separate category yeah i'll talk yeah i think that they category because the the zombie son is the same mechanic basically and that was just as fun if not more that was the best thing in the entire game in terms of novelty for me i loved i loved that boss fight to bits i thought that was brilliant yeah there was uh this bit where the game turned into a shoot 'em up against Neela <laughs> with was, Bentley. That was so funny. When I was when when I was fighting at James, I was thinking of you I was like just <laughs> to shoot up. I was having the time of my life in that mission. Did you figure out the exploit on that mission, by the way? What was it? Your your ship had unlimited fire rate as fast as, fast as you, as you could click button. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you were probably meant to hold down, but I was jamming. I was it as mashing fast as it I could. as fast as and I could. I think I think it died like before it finished a full cycle of its attacks it was it got attacked it, it felt it felt uh, like they left that in because it was like funny to exploit it that way because i was. definitely I, did that i enjoyed it yeah, yeah that was fun i liked that mission i mentioned with bentley and the lasers 
was. Um, I liked the first half of it at least, like doing it in reverse with the bomb. It was a bit more challenging, but even um even going through the trains, like the trains see, were great. Felt like that felt like a stealth level. Like that was actually uh less platforming and more stealth from start to finish as you was moving through. So I enjoyed that a lot as well. The one that stands out in my mind the most is the one where you jump on that pipe that like wraps around the underside uh, of the train. I have a story about that jump. Do you? It took me fifteen tries. Like not really? even kidding. There was one jump with the um where I had to flick off one of the um off the hooks and get to right. the next one. I could not hit it. I was like, what is wrong with me? I was Googling how to do this jump. Like it it I struggled so much with that jump. I thought I thought the game was broken, but I got in the end. <laughs> I just I loved the visual direction of like the train speeding through the countryside with you under the underneath. I thought it was I thought yeah. that wraparound was fantastic. I agree with that, yeah. I, I thought all the train sections were great actually. Like mm -hmm. all four of them were really fun. I liked all of the sawmill platforming challenges. Those were great. Yeah. Um, the the ones that were chasing Neela about and running about, the harder uh, ones were too, better. Too easy. Like I was, I was, I kept getting ahead of her and had to stop and let her get ahead of me again. Mm. Um, there was the one that was like, and this is definitely from a narrative point of view. Once you got out of one of the sawmills, there was a mini game where there was a mammoth frozen in ice, and you needed to like shine a laser on it to melt it. Mm. And you needed to run around the entire level, like, bouncing this laser about the place. And, you know, mechanically it's walk to point and press a button, but, like, the theming of bouncing the laser all over the level was really funny to me. You know, I also uh, got stuck on that for a long time, because what you have to do is you have to, like, run to the edge of the icicle to make it break to redirect the laser. Yes. And I did not realize that. So I was jumping up and down, get hit oh, by no. the laser. I'm like, why isn't this working? I'm trying to put the device. But uh, eventually I accidentally ran over the edge of it and I was able to get it working. I don't know. I, I did that immediately. Um, so I liked that. Did you like the um, the RC missions where you were bombing things? Because they were pretty boring to me. The one on the train was better. Yeah, there were a lot of missions just where you had to interact with an object in the open world, and they all sucked. Like, they just universally sucked. The only one that I enjoyed was when you had to set off the alarm to make the code appear on one of the Contessa levels, and you had like to that. platform up to a high point within a limited time limit to get a view of in the... In order to get the proper view of it? Yeah, yep. yeah. So that, that felt like it was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm kind of like, need to do this quickly, and I need to figure out a path and figure out my, my routing. One of my favorite missions was the one where, where you have the... um the literal bug and you have to move yes. it to the office it's hard right well what what i really liked about it was i thought it was one of the instances where they used the open world really well because i had to figure out my routing because there were these bards all over the place that were kind of yep. like safe spots that would stop this bug creating an alarm so i had to go in advance and figure out a path from one end of the level to the other and be like okay i'll do this and this and this and this and then i you know failed once i was like okay let's adjust it this way and it felt like a really good gameplay use of the open world that felt was lacking from a lot of the other missions i kind of liked the elephant section like it wasn't super interesting mechanically but it made the level the street layout make sense from a gameplay point of view and tied it all together um i liked you know timing the jumps over the trunks it was easy but yeah. you know it was enjoyable enough 
Yeah, that was the problem. It was just too easy, that one. Yeah, I think um, it could have easily been made more engaging. And then, oh, one I really liked was during the jungle, um, I think it's you play as Bentley, you had to lead Rajan to these watermelons <laughs> and like kind of like make him walk through the level by throwing stuff in the right spot. I thought that was enjoyable. Yeah, not a, not a fan of that one. I guess I liked it most when you had these these mini levels that were heavily focused on platforming. I was a big yep. fan of those. And anything where it kind of got a bit more mechanically demanding, like in that lumberjack level, the one where you have to speed climb with Sly up the wall, I failed that several times before I got the timing right. But you know, that might just be my incompetence with those hooks. <laughs> Um, one that I don't think you would have cared for, but for me it was kind of engaging, not because of the gameplay, but because of the way I was playing the game. So, you know how I said to fix the camera I inverted my right analogue stick? Yeah, is this um, the tank control? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, a lot more engaging when the con one like half the controls were reversed, reversed but not yeah. both of them. Yeah, so you're you're controlling like a tank, like a military tank, and each tread is controlled with one of the analog sticks. So like to turn you need to push one up and push one down depending on which way you want to go. And because one of my sticks was inverted, it was such a mindfuck <laughs> trying to, like, figure out how to turn, like, on the dime as the level needed me to. So that was way more fun because of that. And then later on during the heist, you got in the tank again, and I was like, holy shit, no. <laughs> Overall, I just found, because I found so many of these minigames to be, like, mediocre or actively bad, I just wanted to get back to platforming, and I think this is the reason that I've ended up higher on Sly 1 in hindsight. Like, over the course of playing Sly 2, I kind of grew to love the speed and elegance with which, which Sly moves through the level, and every time I was in a minigame, that was kind of, or you know, I was controlling Bentley or Murray in the world, that was being taken away from me, James. And yep. I think that I just wish that they had focused on that as their core mechanic instead of that being almost the backdrop to this pool of novelty that they've instead exploded all over the game in every direction. I really liked when the novelty paid off though. And I don't want to I don't want to diminish what you're saying about the narrative value because I I completely admit like from a narrative point of view this game is like extremely good at what it does. It's just that I value that far less than you do. Yeah. I. Yeah. What about the balloon level? <laughs> the uh, one where you're bouncing on the balloons? That was okay. I I, I didn't mind that one. Did you did you love that one? The move I I really liked any of the levels where you got like an upgrade to your movement ability. Mm. Like, uh, bouncing around on the balloons was fun. That level right at the end where you get that jump Super pack, jump. And yeah. you just get the freedom to move about that crazy level with, like, absolute ease. Oh, so it, good. It was a good level for it as well. I actually, when I first got into that final level, I was... Um... I was a little down on the design because it didn't seem super interesting. I thought it was just a bunch of pathways. And then as I played through it a bit more, I'm like, oh, this level's actually fucking cool. Like, yeah, it, it is cool. Like yeah. the way it all intertwines. Yeah, yeah, it's actually extremely well designed. I, I thought in general, like you said, the world's really well designed. I thought that Lumberjack level that you mentioned, level seven, was probably the weakest um, in terms of interesting vertical design. Yeah, it has the least verticality. And I 
kind of agree with that. I think that visually that level is quite good though still mm-hmm. with all the trains. So also the the mini games or the, the actual gameplay portion of that was probably some of the strongest. Some of the best. Yeah, yeah I agree. So I was happy to take the hit to the verticality for you know the upsides. It was just one of the acts, so I was okay with that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um in general, I think verticality is something that makes games really enjoyable there's a lot of platformers that i think could benefit it from it more and like as i was playing this game i was dr- i had this weird nostalgic feeling while i was playing sly 2 of world of warcraft of all games like sly's 2 level design reminded me strongly of wow's right because all of the zones are very self-contained very strongly themed around a particular idea like a graveyard area or you know an ice area with a particular twist on it um and the levels are very big and vertical um and there's a lot of movement around and there's basically like a quest hub where you do a bunch of different theme parky quests in the big you know vertical level and i kept thinking of that as i was going through each of the sly two levels actually that's a good point mmo quest design is a fair analogy for the i guess the depth of the a lot of these mini games that you're doing which is maybe explains why it wasn't too crash hot on them (laughs) (laughs) i obviously slides platforming is like the fundamental platforming is head and shoulders above anything in an mmo but yeah the some of the mini games are about the same level of complexity as that yeah it was very very nostalgic although i gotta say i think slide 2 does it better than basically any of those games i will Um, also say that for all of its like childishness and cartoonishness this kind of game is a rarity in today's world the equivalent of this game nowadays is horizon zero dawn assassin's creed ghosts of tashima those are the kinds of games that deliver this, you know, kind of like narrative adventure platforming experience. Psychonauts don't they? 2. Well, Psychonauts 2 is, a, is, you're right, that, that is the same kind of thing. But how many games are there like Psychonauts 2, James? Like really, that Not a game released anymore. every year. Yeah. So I do think that if we're asking in terms of like, is this an experience that is, you know, valuable that you might not be able to experience today very easily? I think the answer is yes. Like, I, I think this is this kind of school of game design has kind of been forgotten in some ways. I agree with that. Yeah. So I think we should go to another music break. Um, mm-hmm. And then I want to talk a bit about the story. Um, we've spoken a bit about the narrative framing. I do want to talk a bit about the plot with some spoilers and that kind of thing. I don't think it's like uh, an out of this world kind of thing, but I do think there are some cool bits regarding it. Um, And then we can talk a bit more about, I guess, the progression of the story and the structure, which I thought was kind of interesting. So Mm -hmm. let's go to a music break. Um, I'm going to pick the music from the first Canadian level, um, which I thought was fantastic. I really liked this theme. It brought back memories of Whispering Rock from Psychonauts 1, which I adored to bits. Um, I think the atmosphere in these levels was impeccable, some of the best in the whole game. Um, So this is Sly 2's Canada theme.
That was the theme from the Canadian levels in Sly 2. Alright Pat, let's talk a bit about the story. I imagine we're going to get into spoiler territory here and actually um, if you haven't played the game before there are some pretty significant spoilers in this story surprisingly enough. I know it's like a you know, a Saturday morning cartoon game, but there is a fairly reasonably big twist in the middle. And the narrative matters in this game. In fact, I'd say that if you're not in it for the narrative, there's less of a strong argument to play it. So if you are, if everything James and I about uh, have been saying about the story sounds good and you don't think you'll be put off by my gameplay gripes nearly the same way I have, then you should probably play Sly 2 before uh, before listening to this section or at least skip 5-10 minutes ahead. Alright, the game kind of does this really cool thing I thought of like setting your expectation for structure and while it does mostly follow that throughout the whole game of, you know, you go to a place, there's a clockwork part, there's a big bad who has the part. You know, very similar to the first game where it gives you, like, the villain's sob backstory, why they became mm -hmm. evil or whatever. Um, and then, you know, you beat them, you get the part, you move on to the next level. Sly 2 has a bit of a twist in Act 3, um, where there's, like, a betrayal of sorts. Uh, you get betrayed by Neela who, you know, up until this point... Has been helping you. Has been helping you. You know, she's a new character. She's a cop in Interpol working alongside Carmelita. But she's a shadier cop. She's a she's more of a street cop. She's willing to work with the thieves in order to take down the bigger criminals, right? Whereas Carmelita's more of a, you know, a straight-edge cop, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew something was shady about Neela, but I don't think I was expecting quite what happened at the end of Act 3. Not, not this early in the game i thought it would come at the end right at the end yeah so yeah. it actually took me by surprise which was cool and it wasn't like it wasn't out of nowhere either right like she was shady right from the beginning <laughs> like <Yes>. super <laughs> shady um and it was great because it actually like narratively leads into what i think is the high point of the story which is sly and murray get captured by the bad guys and that leaves bentley on his own to basically break them out in the next level and the next two levels that come after the betrayal, I thought narratively, atmospherically, and story-wise were the best in the game by, like, a lot, right? You go to this creepy... Mental institution? Like, like, an, like an old, old mental institution. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, it's like spooky, like Halloween-themed almost. Uh, there's, like really creepy raven guards and graves it's like the asylum in psychonauts one almost mm -hmm. uh it's got a very bleak dark tone to it even the the villain is kind of hypnotizing people and breaking their minds in this level so uh you know more to that as well um and i thought that this whole section narratively was easily my favorite part of the game um i didn't see most of this coming and i thought that the way they hammed up bentley's character in this section was really good and the way that they kind of like subverted my expectation of the flow of the story was awesome yeah i i agree with all of that it was cool busting sly out then using slide to bust murray out and i think that this was the high point for narrative being interwoven with gameplay mechanics and yep. it did it the entire way through but it did it really well in this like i like the idea that murray creates a ruckus to get thrown into solitary confinement because they've created a plan to bust him out of solitary because that's a much 
easier location to bust him out of. It just flowed really well from step to step to step. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, James. Particularly Mission 4 um, was the most engaging and interesting from a narrative point of view. Yeah, and I think um, we talked about it in Sly 1, but Sly 1 and 2 are kind of like stealth-themed. When you only have access to Bentley in, in, in Chapter 4, and he's not very strong, I felt like the the world felt dangerous in a way that it didn't in the rest of the series, honestly. Like, that first bit uh, of Chapter 4, I felt that there was this sense of danger and tension and atmosphere that, you know, wasn't present in the rest of uh, Sly as a Unfortunately, whole. Um, I can't get behind you on this one. I don't really? think that there was any danger or tension at any point. So, so like, from a gameplay point of view, you have guards that walk around in circles, basically, and then you have some spotlights, uh, and you can run whenever you're not close to guards. That didn't change, and the mechanics of that didn't change from mission one to mission eight at any point. So I never felt in danger, and when I got spotted, I just held down the run button and got away from the danger. So I didn't feel that tension. I I don't want to diminish the narrative strength of those parts, but from a gameplay point of view, did nothing for me. I don't disagree with what you're saying. Like it probably wasn't actually like mechanically threatening at all maybe maybe the game pulled the wool over my eyes it's it's not it's not a bad thing to get immersed in the world james like it's probably my failing for not getting more immersed in the world i i I don't want to take away from the from what you're saying i'm just saying from my point of view uh yeah i'm still bored (laughs) unfortunately yeah that's fair the next thing, um, I guess, narratively that I I thought was good was that um, during the game, you kind of run into a whole bunch of different villains who, you know, each steal one of the clockwork parts for their own ends. For example, Dimitri at the start steals the tail feathers, which he has used to make a Infinite printing money. press. Yeah, yeah, he just <laughs> prints money with them. It's like, why didn't I think of that? Genius. Um, and he actually offers Sly some of the money if he doesn't, you know, steal them. And I'm like, why wouldn't you do that? He's offering you half of infinite money, which is still infinite money. <laughs> Just take it. But, you know, it was confusing me a bit, right? Because a lot of the narrative strength of the game was in the setup of the, the heists and everything like kind of fit together really neatly. The betrayal was awesome and, you know, the aftermath of that and figuring it out was awesome. But I just like I got this sense during the game that all the villains were like barely connected to each other at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right at the end, um, the leader of the organization, you know, gives you a bit of exposition and actually... It did actually all fit together logically, um, mm. and I thought that the way that all came together made a lot of sense, and I was like, oh, yeah, actually, that that does make more sense now, whereas before that, everything kind of, you know, felt a bit disparate. I will say I was rolling my eyes waiting for the inevitable 
uh, someone raids all of the clockwork parts from from Sly and the gang because I'm like, hmm, they're collecting all the clockwork parts yeah. in one location. I wonder what's going to happen. So that was the most obvious thing that could have possibly happened in the history of video games. What I didn't expect is that Neela would be the one piloting the clockwork bird and not the parrot who dreamed of flying because that seemed so obvious. I was like, yep, that's poetry that makes sense but that that did catch me off guard i was a hundred percent expecting the triple cross from neela i mean like it's her character right like she's such a prick (laughs) yeah i wasn't expecting it but i thought it was good because they did a great job i actually thought that arpeggio the bird who was like the mastermind of the villain organization like i really liked the whole he was born with a really small stubby bird body and he wanted a big one it was kind of poetic right like i liked that I liked the um, design of all the enemies in there, like the parrots in the mech suits kind of yes. walking around. <laughs> yeah, walking around. Those, those are my favorite enemies uh, because it also fits in with um, with him, right? It's like he's he's this genius inventor and he needs to make his parrot buddies threatening, so he gives them mech suits. <laughs> yeah, and I also liked the triple cross with Neela at the end. Now, my biggest complaint about the story is that I don't think that she gets enough of a, like, motivation or backstory herself. Like, every single villain, except for her, who ends up being the main villain, gets this big elaborate backstory that's explained to us, where she's just a prick. Like, she's just a dickhead, and there's no real explanation for it or anything. She's playing all sides. Yeah. I kind of would have liked to have her have a backstory that was kind of like an antithesis of Sly's, because I think the idea is that she's meant to be just as devious as Sly in some ways, but she's dedicated her life to being, you know, Revolver Ocelot instead of, um, yeah. instead of the, instead of, you know, Snake. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked her as a villain, though. Oh, like- and her voice acting was not good, though. That was the one thing holding me back from really loving her. I was just like, it just felt weak. Yeah, but I think with a lot of games aimed at a younger audience, there's kind of this, like, the villains are kind of ridiculous, whereas I feel like Neela is just underhanded mm-hmm. and, like, to the point, right? Like, everything she did was, like, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how to word what I'm trying to say. I agree. Like, She's uh, no Revolver Ocelot, but then again, who is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You told me you listened back to episode one and said I was high on the story of um, Sly 1. But actually, when you told me that, I was like, really? I don't remember anything about the story. Well, I, and we only played it like a year ago. I, I think he liked the um, the villains, as you suggested. And I think that one of the things you told me you really liked was like the group of friends coming together um, and the chemistry between them and everything because it's like a nostalgic thing for you. But it's a structure that I'm not particularly fond of, as you well know. I think they did both of those things way better here. I I agree with that, yeah. It's more... And part of that is the fact that you get to control these characters. So you you get, you know, Murray with his superhero persona. Like, it is a simple shtick, but it's one that's consistent from the beginning to the end. And he likes being there for his friends. Bentley as the you know genius mastermind uh, with a very dry sense of humor like it, it all it all works really well the jokes didn't land all the time but some of Bentley's lines got me so good like particularly after Sly and Murray get captured and he's like 
while they were of inferior intellect, those two were often of sociological interest too. Like some of them were like so great. Um, like it wasn't Psychonauts one levels are funny, but what is? Um, and I think yeah, but what is right? But it did bring me amusement throughout the game. Um, there was one final thing I wanted to mention. There was actually some weirdly like dark parts of the story maybe maybe it's not fair to say that sly 2 did this but do you remember at the end of the this the story how bentley gets crushed by clockwork right at the end uh oh yeah bentley and then murray opens the mouth so in the third game bentley's actually a paraplegic because of that what um like yeah, like he's paralyzed permanently from the what? waist down for the rest of the series okay. because of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, isn't that like weirdly dark for that a children's is, game? Yeah. <laughs> that there'd be like, consequences. Consequences, yeah. And I kind of, part of me likes Jesus. that. And that was yeah. like, for example, on the third level where Rajan is peddling quote unquote spices, right? Like, that's just an analogy for a drug trade. Yeah. Um, dressed up for you know a younger audience but there's stuff like that that like I appreciated um, that maybe would have flown over my head if I played this when I was 12. Um, I do also find it interesting how you just kill enemies like you just you just yeah. straight up murder them right like and and I think that because the world and setting feels more real that hit harder than it does in a game like Banjo-Kazooie. Like, in Banjo-Kazooie, it can be like, yeah, it's just Banjo-Kazooie, I'm just playing a game. But because the world feels more real, the consequences of murdering these lackeys felt more real as well. Yeah, that's what I was mentioning before about how it felt a bit off to, like, drug people to sleep and then, like, <laughs> blow them up. Um, that was, man, there was this one moment that I laughed so hard was in the the sawmill shed you do this thing where you go in there as murray and you need to like play an rc car battle mm. with one of the moose people and to do that you need to get a moose head like off the wall and put it on it's like why do these moose people have moose heads on the wall is it just like it's <laughs> like, like a having a uncle. skull <laughs> yeah it's like a bit of and it wasn't like I don't know, it was just the same model as the dudes just on the wall. You know, I didn't even great. think of that, but yes, that is a bit disturbing now you say it, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I feel like a reason this probably feels more impactful is because of how good the world building is. Like, this, feel, yeah. these feel like, you know, not real as in our world real, but the world is brought to life in such a way that, you know, it feels like these are people you know in this world yeah like all the characters who are in the levels are there for a reason they're you yep. know conducting a spice trade or what have you and every building every part of the level narratively fits that i think the the levels are almost like big characters in themselves they're mm -hmm. just packed with personality in a lot of ways like i love some of these characters I love are most like, of them are like lumberjacks they're not even like necessarily bad people and you just murder them <laughs> just and, murdering them yeah it's, yeah you know, i mean little, you're thieves but that's a that's a testament to the world building more than anything else i think yeah uh, I, I really liked it um that was okay i have one note that i saw in we're, we're getting close to wrapping up i just had one stray point that i really wanted to bring up mm -hmm. 
Um, in the first game, one of the things that we we really liked was this mini game that was like a rhythm game that ended up being the exact same musical mini game that we saw in Base Channel Five, right? Like they make you just—it's just a game of memorization and timing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that both of us, you know, mentioned would be nice for both Sly One's mini game and in Space Channel Five is that we felt the game would be better if there was something to show you the beat that you could use to time your button inputs. Mm -hmm. um, Sly 2 does that, actually. It introduces a way to show you how to press the button on the beat, and it was so boring. It made the, what was my favorite part of the first game into a boring minigame because it was too easy. I was like, I was wrong. My opinion in those other episodes was wrong. It shouldn't have any visual indication. They could have made the minigame harder though. Like, because it's actually two minigames. You have like the practice to get the real one for the heist. And when I did the first minigame, I was like, well, that was extremely easy, but it's just teaching me the minigame. And then I'm going to get to the challenge for the... um for the real one and it was exactly the same difficulty and i'm like what a gem in general the boss fights of this game were so much easier than sly one like the boss fights in sly one were genuinely challenging like i remember the one with the dog with the machine gun um as you said the alligator space channel 5 boss fight like failed them several times apart from the um the death trap one against bison which i failed several times by dropping logs on my own head I beat all these bosses first or second try. Um, I died to Dimitri once, I think. Um, yeah. I was too, I was too aggressive and wasn't like I was impatient, basically. Yeah, and not I waiting died for him Dimitri to shoot. one once as well because it takes a while to sound out like what the game actually wants you to do. But once you understand that you can hit once and then fall back inf infinitely, then it you know loses all interest. The the Contessa battle boss battle was a complete disappointment. That was garbage. Yeah. Like I was like, we've been building up to this for two entire levels, and this is what you give me. When Phase Two's cutscene started, and she's like, you know, she's like, "I'll control your mind." I was getting ready to be like sucked into the Psychonauts world exactly. of weird platforming, and and then it was just this mediocre attack that literally never hit me. <laughs> exactly. Um, it was like it, it could have been so cool, and then it just was. It was the same with the Raja boss fight, which was just like jump and hit jump and hit jump and hit oh i don't actually i died to that a lot it took me forever to kill him. Uh, i don't know why it, no no it took me a few tries as well but once i understood that i just needed to jump punch jump punch and beat it first like I, yeah. I went from failing it three times in a row to to doing it flawlessly without taking any damage yeah me too yeah <laughs> um but the bison fight genuinely excellent enjoyed it a lot and enjoyed getting the muscle memory down to maximize those traps yeah, like the theming of that fight was so good because you control Bentley, right? Mm -hmm. And you're in a big sawmill and there's like clamps holding logs above you and there's saw blades on the ground. And, you know, basically you have Bentley fight the big boss while Sly is up on the control panel. And instead of like Bentley using his moves, your button presses have him call out to Sly what lever to press, basically. So, like, square makes all of the spike traps go off and triangle drops the logs. And you kind of like need to kite 
the boss around the room into the traps and then tell Sly to activate the traps. Also being careful not to be on the same Get hit trap. yourself. Yeah. And like I said, I dropped logs on my head many times. Yeah, and then extra enemies start spawning. It starts so throwing dynamite like... at you, so you have yeah. to be more careful. Yeah, it's it's just like, it's a real standout. Really fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the rare case where the novelty really paid off, I think, um, mm. and actually made for a really good gameplay experience. But yeah, uh, I think we're basically about to wrap up on this one. Yeah, it sounds good. Should I go first, James? Yeah, sure. So um, Sly 2 was an interesting game to play. A lot more interesting than I was anticipating, but I cannot recommend it. I think that for me, this was just not a great gameplay experience. Uh, I... I have come round a lot on the platforming aspects of Sly, and I think that if they had focused more on expanding the platforming aspects or had dived deeper in making it a three-character Lost Vikings game, I'd be a lot higher on it. Instead, they went wide, and they decided to create a um, much deeper narrative more atmospheric, more immersive experience with lots of novelty with its mini games. For me, that doesn't add up to a fun experience that's worth playing for 15 hours. But unlike many other games that we've played, I can definitely see the appeal of this to other people. Like a lot of time I'm befuddled as to why people could possibly enjoy games like this. The narrative here is so strong that it's easy for me to see why people love it as much as they do. So while Sly 2 is not for me, and I don't recommend it to anyone who enjoys um, games primarily for the gameplay, there is a lot to like here and i think slide 2 achieves what it was setting out to achieve remarkably well it's just what it was trying to do was is not really my cup of tea on the other hand i really really enjoyed slide 2 um everything patrick said is true they definitely went for a big wide experience but actually to me not too wide because i think a lot of open world games struggle with this idea of having these big boring open worlds that aren't filled with things to do i think every single one of sly 2's open worlds is tightly packed and dense rather than open and meandering each of the levels is very carefully designed for its like missions and everything in the levels is there for a reason it's filled with treasure and bottles and all of the crazy verticality in the levels is an absolute joy to jump around on the game controls super smoothly and is just really fun to play when you're playing a sly less so as the other two characters but i can kind of forgive them because to me those two create a more interesting navigation puzzle by their lack of you know ability on terms of the minigames and the mission structure of the, the series, I actually ended up enjoying the vast majority of these. There were some that I loved to bits, like the shoot 'em up sections, uh, the trap sections, etc. Some of these, like the turret sections, are much worse than the rest. However, I think the sheer amount of variety, creativity on display more than makes up for that in my eyes. I think that every single mission in the entire game does at least something unique to it. 
Um, and there, you know, even though some ideas are repeated, there is at least one or two new ideas every single level. And for a 15 hour game, that is quite impressive to me. Uh, I love the visual and audio direction of this game. I think that the levels are basically their own characters. I think that the narrative in this game is vastly superior to the first. I think the characterization uh, and the presentation of the characters is fantastic. The game's narrative actually has a few interesting wrinkles that I was not expecting. And, you know, uh, the mid game is particularly strong, but on the whole, I think that everything is very well thought out. And the attention to narrative detail is really impressive here. So on the whole, really liked Sly 2. I could play this game again sometime in the future, probably not for a while, but I had a blast playing this one and I, you know, 100%ed the bottle collection if that, you know, goes to show how much I enjoyed it. So uh, absolutely recommend Sly 2, yes. We'll just do Sly 3 next episode, James. <laughs> I have actually finished Sly 3. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, as a kid, I rented it from Blockbuster because the Blockbuster didn't have one or two, so I could only play three. <laughs> so actually, my play order was three, one, two. It's funny, I don't think you'll like Slide 3, actually, because they, there's actually more playable characters. There's they like, just double down on it. There's yeah. like seven, and they double down on the mini games. so... I um, mean, at that but stage, I remember it's becoming it. its identity, right? Like, I can yeah. understand moving further in that direction. It's it's just, James, like, the thing is, all of the elements for for a Lost Viking-style game are here. Like, it, it feels so obvious to me. It's like, Murray can throw the other characters. He's big and strong, so he can get the characters to places they wouldn't otherwise be able to get, right? Bentley has bombs and can hack and has gadgets. Sly has his platforming abilities. Murray can throw things at he can throw things at objects at, at a distance like it's just perfect you have all three characters you swap between them you create levels that require like even Bentley has a trank rifle so he can trank enemies at a distance that Sly would be unable to stealth past it's all there like the game makes itself why didn't they do it why didn't they do it James what if it was co-op instead and there was three parts oh, yeah absolutely yes lock it in let's make this game it because i've played trine and trine you know is another version of lost vikings but there is no reason you couldn't make this game in a 3d space i i just i don't understand it feels like such a missed opportunity god i wish this game was more like the lost vikings said patrick <laughs> well my honestly the, the thing about the lost vikings is that that game just punished you with insta-death at the end of the level <laughs> if one of your vikings tripped over a wire the wrong way and then you had to do the whole thing that was my main problem with the game yeah. i didn't have any problems with the puzzle structure the puzzle the structure concept was is cool right yeah. yeah but you know like when you're blowing up your vikings as balloons like towards the end uh... of the level and one dies it's like well i guess i'm doing the whole level again <laughs> That was the bad part of Lost Vikings, <laughs> not the not the not the ref. Yeah, I I would like to see something like that, and I actually was thinking, you know, when I was making those comparisons to World of Warcraft in my head, I was like, why can't MMOs just be like have a cool platforming section instead? We're no longer constrained by people playing these games on dial-up. <laughs> Guild Wars Two had a lot of jumping puzzles, but they weren't like fun. They were just jumping off from platform to platform mostly it wasn't like you were playing characters with unique abilities maybe the later jumping puzzles they did but i play this game online with three <laughs> people i think that yeah so yeah our brilliant game design idea it needs to happen
but but that about wraps it up thank you so much for joining us today uh, to hear us talk all about sly cooper 2 james and i are the retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight or you know in this case once every three weeks uh, we play through classic games of the past to determine if they stood the test of time opinions on sly 2 are mixed but they're often the most interesting episodes anyway um you can find all of our content on our website which is rspodcast.net it's got links to all of our social media stuff um all the articles that james and i have written and every single one of our 90 episodes episodes now god that number's gained higher and higher uh most importantly it's got a link to our discord server which we will also pop in the show notes uh, this is where we interact with people where we discuss games where we take show recommendations and if you're enjoying the show we'd love if you would drop by and say hello or you know criticize criticize our opinions either or is good with that out of the way it's time to talk about what we're doing for the next fortnight and i'm kind of excited for this one it's a game i've not played but was recommended to me on reddit actually after i um posted how much i loved Star Fox 64 and it's a game for the dreamcast called res have you heard of this game before james I've seen pictures of it, and I've seen games that use art styles like this before, but I've never actually played one myself. So it seems to be a weird blend of a rhythm game with a rail shooter. And at first, I mean, I was like, Rez, what the hell is this? I watched some YouTube footage of this game. I immediately fell in love. Like, I love it when music syncs to gameplay like this uh audio surf i used to play the hell out of that game and that's all that game was very simple gameplay but it synced perfectly to the music that was playing and watching this game get played it looks like a a fever trip that you're almost engaged on with that rhythmic music underpinning every single gameplay movement so it's it's a short game but it looks like a very one, one i'm gonna love like i i'm going into this expecting me to love it and i really hope i'm right yeah and i mean if it if it sucks it's only like what like two hours long or something <laughs> two hours of sucking yeah so yeah. but yeah yeah so i'm um, looking forward to res and uh we'll see you in a fortnight for for that game see you then guys 